Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 4 again. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Chapter 1, verse 18 we began reading last week, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That wrath of God. How God gave people over to their own desires. Leading to their own downgraded lives. Leading to finally depraved minds. And we talked about the last couple of weeks how this first section of the book of Romans, the first three chapters specifically, are about condemnation. They are heavy with condemnation. But we need to understand what's going on here. And in this opening segment of the letter to the Christians who are gathered there in Rome, the Holy Spirit is building through Paul a brilliant case for the whole of humanity's need for salvation. That's what this is all about. Whether a person is willfully ungodly and unrighteous, or a person is boastfully self-righteous, or even someone who is religiously righteous, Everybody stands condemned before the righteousness of God. Everybody. And there is no exception. Romans 2.11, Paul says, there's no partiality with God. And he's talking about all manner of people. From the heathen to the Hebrew. All stand condemned. In fact, if you want to take a peek ahead, look at chapter 3, verse 10. Where Paul writes, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul just dropped the mic. Makes his point. He pulls out right there seven different verses from the Psalms and from Isaiah to point out absolutely clearly that all mankind stands condemned. Mankind at its worst and at its best, condemned. And he does it to show that we're never going to be good enough. Do you understand that? We are never going to be good enough for God. We will never evolve to that place. How are you feeling? (laughs) And within this section of condemnation... We have some of the best news in the entire Bible. 
You see, embedded in this deeply discerning but profoundly honest expose, right here in the midst of it is a great truth, and that is this. Once you turn to Jesus, this entire section no longer applies. All of of Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20 does not apply once you have turned, repented is the word, and given your life to Jesus. That's so important to understand because so many Christians are still looking over their shoulder at old sins. Looking back at who they were, at what they did in the past. Irrelevant, inconsequential, forgotten, forgiven once you have given your life over to Jesus. It doesn't apply. My friends, Paul isn't even talking to the Christians in Rome yet. He gives a hello, a greeting, and then he launches on condemnation, but the condemnation is not for them. Let me see if I can explain a little better. Let's say you're running your first marathon. I know several of you are looking forward to that kind of thing. And you forgot to bring a water bottle or a hydration pack of any kind. It's your first one. You didn't know. At two miles, your throat's a little dry. At five miles... Starting to get scratchy. At the 10 mile marker, it is absolutely burning. At 15 miles into the marathon, you begin to wonder if you're ever going to be able to swallow again. And you realize you just passed a water station. And so you turn around and go back to it. And there, someone hands you not just a water bottle, but an entire hydration pack, hooks you up and says, be refreshed. And off you go, guzzling and running and refreshed. Now as you run the race, from there on you keep noticing. For the first time, you never noticed it before. There are water stations everywhere. As a matter of fact, every mile along the 26 uh, mile and 385 yard marathon, every mile there's a water station there. And there's a voice calling out, come, drink, be refreshed. You'd run 15 miles, you'd never seen it before. Didn't realize it. Here's the thing. As you run along, you notice a lot of other dry, burned out, worn out people who also forgot to bring any kind of water bottles for their run. And you keep hearing that voice call out, Come and drink and be refreshed. Come be refreshed. Here's the question. Is the voice calling out to you? No. You've already gotten your hydration pack. You're already refreshed. You're running strong. You're guzzling as you go. The water pack never runs dry. Here's the point. Jesus people get this. Paul is not talking to you. In Romans 1.18 through 3.20. You are not the subject. Well, that's a little arrogant. No, it's called forgiveness. It's called redemption. It's called refreshment. This entire segment is to the unrepentant heart, and it's a voice calling out from the water station, come and be refreshed. You know, I was thinking, it's so amazing. Brian's talking about the water jugs in Jesus' first miracle. Coincidental? I think not. And it it struck me that what the Jews used those water purification jugs for was purification, right? The purification rituals, the hand washing, 
that they had to do before each meal, and especially the strictly observant Jews. They turned God's beautiful picture of refreshment into a symbol of religion. They took the idea of purification and worked it into a job, a task that they must perform every time they would eat a meal or perhaps read the Word. And completely missed the point. They did the same thing with Shabbat, right? The Sabbath day. Turned a day of rest and rejuvenation and refreshment into the Lord into a day of work. Marking everything that you do, making sure you do not cross the line. That's religion. The church does that when it sits in Romans 1, 2, and 3 to condemn itself. It's not about us. Once you've got your hydration packed, once you're running with that bottle of never-ending living water, you are always constantly refreshed. In fact, you have a job to do, and that's to call out to the rest of the runners. Hey, did you see the water station? Turn around. It's right there. And that, I think, is the point. Peter says in Acts 3.19, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. Return. Be refreshed. And there's a water station right here in the middle of condemnation. And it's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. But let's start at verse 1. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who is he talking to? Guess what? Not Christians. Not the church. Hey, we talked about this Wednesday night, but I need everybody to hear this. Paul is talking about the judgmental attitude of the unrepentant. He's talking about the bigotry of the good person. And it's so important that Christians understand this because this is part of the reason I think that culture has cowed Christians. Why believers are not as outspoken about our faith as perhaps we would be otherwise. We are fearful that we will be seen as judgmental. And we read passages like Romans 2 verses 1 through 3 and go, Oh, see, see, I can't, I can't judge. I just, I can't judge. He's not talking to you. This is not about you. Well, how do you know? Because it is not a sin. Let me rephrase. It is not bigotry to call something sinful that God calls sinful. Why? Because God's the standard, not you. It's not judgmental to call something wrong that God says is wrong. To judge based on the standard of God's Word or on the standard of God's nature. And again, we talked about this Wednesday. Here's the definition of bigotry. It's judging others based on the standard of the self. If I judge you based on me, on my opinions, on my feelings, on my attitudes, on the way I live my life, if I judge you compared to me, that's bigotry. But if I make a statement that judges based on the Word of God, which is everlasting truth, that is not bigotry. It's simply the truth. And this is what happens. It's interesting to me. I was thinking about our culture 
I think about our culture a lot. (laughs) This social media-driven culture where personal opinion has been elevated to the highest place. Everybody has to answer the news columns. Everybody has to tweet out their thoughts, their opinions. Who cares what the stars think? I don't. Did you see that tweet from so-and-so? Big deal. It's his opinion. It's her opinion. But we've taken personal opinion and elevated it to the highest place. And the threat of bigotry and judgmentalism is just amplified when people are out there giving their opinion. we got a world full of bigots when we judge each other based on ourselves. But when my judgment is based on the Word of God, it is no judgment. It is no bigotry. It's just the truth. Listen to how Jesus put it. He said in John 12, 47, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. There's your judgment. And so, Christian brother and sister, if you're sharing something from the Word of God that is opposed to the way someone's doing something in culture, and they say, you're judgmental, say, no, the Bible's the judge. I'm just telling you what it says. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not even saying what I think. I'm telling you what God's Word says. That is not judgmentalism. What's your standard of judgment? What do you use to judge the world? With the rise of the mighty opinion, Paul's question in verse 4 takes on a surprising relevance for us. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? Do you think lightly? To think lightly is kataphroneo in the Greek. Kataphroneo, which means literally to think down on. Do you think down on? Nine times in the Bible it's translated despise or scorn. Do you scorn? Do you spurn? Do you despise? Do you look down your nose at the kindness of God? What a question. It is a question that in the middle of this teaching on condemnation should stop us dead in our tracks. What? What did he say? The kindness of God, what? Do you think lightly of God's kindness? How could anybody? If you understand God's kindness, even in the slightest, how could you spurn it? How could you look down on it? How have I ever, and I have, disdained the goodness and the kindness of God? Maybe it's because people just don't understand what that kindness looks like. So let's take a moment and understand it. Let's get a little picture for our minds of the kindness that Paul is referring to here. They threw her down at the feet of Jesus, a pawn in their game. Caught in the act of adultery, she was nothing but a trick to test this Galilean rabbi. You know the story, you Bible students. Anyway, John chapter 8, verse 2, which tells us early in the morning, He came again into the temple and all the people were coming to Him, and He sat down and began to teach them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. This is John chapter 8. And having set her in the center, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the very act! Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. It's perfect. If he condemns her, (laughs) all those vagrants who love him, they'll see he's no friend of sinners, and he loses. But if he clears her, he'll be in direct violation of the law of God that he claims to represent. It's perfect. We got him. They set him up. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He who is without sin, the implication is he who is without the same sin. Go ahead and start throwing stones. Romans chapter 2 verse 1. You have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And it's entirely likely that there were at least a handful of those leaders there who were as adulterous as she was. In fact, by the standard of Jesus, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And I wonder how many of the Pharisees were sitting there looking at her out of the corner of their eye, committing adultery right then. Those of you who are without the same sin, feel free. Start stoning her. Well, you know the story. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. From now on, go and sin no more. The kindness of God. The kindness of God. This account literally gushes kindness, overflows with kindness. The kind of kindness that leads to repentance. Some believe, and I would agree, that this this event was actually prophesied about by Jeremiah. Chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And you know, the day before this happened, the very day before, Jesus had stood up and declared, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Holy hydration pack. (laughs) The kindness of the fountain of living water is like the water stations all along the way in a marathon, but some would rather be written in the dust than turn around and go back to a water station and be filled. They would just despise the kindness of God, disdain it, spurn it. You know what's interesting to me, and I didn't catch this the first time around when we were studying through John? 
John very clearly points out that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground uh, the first time when they accused her. But when he turned it back on them saying, who is without sin, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. John then says, again, he stooped down, understand the kindness of God. While their own hearts judged them, Jesus did not. Jesus not only would look at the woman in her sin, He didn't look at the woman in her sin, but He would not look at them in their sin. Those jerk Jewish Pharisees and leaders who threw that woman down in in meanness, I I would be looking at them going, go ahead, make my day. (laughs) But He doesn't, does He? Anyone without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And He looks down. And there was not a single Pharisee there, a single Jewish leader there, who walked away feeling like they were shamed and guilt-tripped by Jesus. It was the sin of their own heart that got them. That's the kindness of God. Even the sinful enemy, He did not stare down. It's remarkable to me. They just dropped their rocks. They walked away. By the way, rocks can be heavy to carry around after a while, especially if you're running in a race. They just get heavier and heavier. And judging others based on the standard of yourself can get to be a really heavy thing. So don't do that. I mean, who's up to judgment anyway? Who's up to judging the world based on your own self-righteousness? There's only one in all of history that I know of. Abraham said to him in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He shall. He does. He will. Because He is the perfect standard. The righteousness of God. So He has every right to judge. Which is why we don't judge on ourselves. We judge based on Him. We judge based on His character. We share the truth based on His perfect Word. And this judge knows what we need more than anything else. And what's that? The kindness of God. The kindness of God. I had to deal with this this week and think about this. I'll, I'll let you join me in it. How quick do you rush to judgment against other people? Not based on fact, but based on feelings. Not based on God's oracles, but on your opinions. That's not our call. His Word His nature, His kindness is the standard of righteousness and He leads out with kindness. So Paul's question now, it still hangs in the air. We have this beautiful picture and there are dozens of them in the Gospels. Jesus came to explain God to us that we might understand God by seeing Him in the flesh. And so He shows us time and time again Day in and day out, month after month, year after year, throughout his ministry and his life, we see the kindness of God as he loves people, as he heals people, as he cares for people. And it is that kindness that draws people to him, draws them to repentance. But that question is still out there. How can a person despise the riches of his kindness? Let me give you three ways. Number one. When I reject God's kindness as unnecessary, I despise it. The unrighteous says, I don't want it. The self-righteous says, 
I don't need it. The religiously righteous says, I'll get myself there. And in all cases, they despise the kindness of God. I do so when I reject it as unnecessary. All three of those attitudes gone over in Romans 1, 2, and 3. All three despise the riches of God's kindness. But there's another way to do it. It's not only when I reject it as unnecessary, I spurn God's kindness when I refuse it to other people. When I won't share it. Like the Pharisees, despising God's kindness by despising all those vagrants and sinners who would come to Jesus and eat with Him. Remember what they said? Luke 15.2 The Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's an attitude that disdains the kindness of God. Rather than seeing what Jesus was doing, the love of God shown to these sinners, they spurned Him for it. I'm going to share a story with you, and I didn't get permission from my friend to do it, but I'm going to share it anyway. Last week, we talked openly about homosexuality and depravity. Laid it out clearly. What is God's Word as the standard of righteousness? What does God's Word say? Not what does Pastor Rick think. And we went through this. Interesting, during the week, one of our brothers here, Craig Taylor, had the opportunity to share the Gospel with a co-worker on their lunch break, whose homosexual partner joined them for lunch. So the man is homosexual, his partner was there, and, and Craig, little Christian Craig, is sitting there with him. About halfway through lunch, Craig, and I'm, I'm kind of revising the story I'm, as I remember him telling me, but he said, he said he turned to his co-worker and he said, can I ask you a question? If you knew a bus full of people was barreling toward a cliff. I mean, right there, I got that far into the story and I just went, dude, you've got guts. I mean, I've told that in a sermon, but that's what Christians, come on, man. If you knew a bus full of people was barreling toward a cliff and was going to go over the cliff because they had no idea it was there, would you try to stop them? And his co-worker friend said, well, of course. And Craig said, that's why I've got to tell you that the lifestyle you're living is not okay with God. Well, the conversation was interesting to say the least. Uh, the co-worker's friend got openly hostile and angry, even to the point of shouting. Craig kept his cool, and finally his co-worker said to him, why are you telling me this? And Craig said... Because I love you. Not in that way. (laughs) He said, but I love you as someone who God loves and wants to set free. Craig said his co-worker had tears running down his face. And the last thing he said to me was, we'll see where this goes. And I just thought, bravo. Praise the Lord. Good for you, Craig. See, that's the kindness of God. Why are you telling me this? Because you're a sinner. Because you're, you're wrong. And I'm right. Because your standard of living is not good like my standard of living. No. I'm telling you this because I love you. Because God loves you. Because there's a water station right here, man. And all you have to do is turn around and run to it. 
and be refreshed. The kindness of God. How many times, Lord, have I spurned Your kindness by refusing it to someone else because I was afraid to? Because I didn't have the guts to stand up and just speak the truth in love. How many opportunities do we let go? And I don't say this to guilt trip anyone, but to shock us into reality, how many opportunities do we let go through the week that we could share the love of God just speaking honestly with someone, but we don't want to because we don't want to be seen as wacko? I despise, or at a minimum, I diminish the kindness of God every time I refuse to share the gospel with someone in love. Now, someone might object to that and say, but it's too hard. Besides the fact, they're not coming around fast enough. Well, Paul said, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? He uses three descriptors here. We didn't even talk about this on Wednesday night. I had to come back to this. These are worth jotting down. Each one of these three words, understanding what it is they mean. The first word is kindness. Do you think lightly of his kindness? And the word is krestotis. Krestotis. He'll use the word twice in this verse. The first time you see kindness there in the New American Standard translation. The King James, I believe, translates as goodness, but kindness is the better word. And the first time you see it there, it's krestotis. And the second time you see it where he says the kindness of God leads to repentance, that kindness is krestos. Same word, it's just a different way of saying it. The first one, get this, is a noun. And the second one is an adjective. Why? I'll tell you in just a minute. So first we have His kindness, which again, it just means His kindness. This is the way God functions. And that's what draws people. The kindness of God, a noun. Secondly, tolerance. The word tolerance is anoke. And anoke is probably better translated forbearance. See, we see the word tolerance and we have an Americanized version of tolerance. Tolerance is being okay with anything. Tolerance is saying live and let live. Tolerance is uh, being comfortable with you live your lifestyle and that's fine and I will tolerate it. I'll be tolerant with it. Anything else is intolerance, right? That is not an okay. That is not the tolerance of God. It is forbearance. The tolerance of God and get this. We've seen it play out on the world stage again and again and again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Listen, that's the patience of God. It was the forbearance of God. For 120 years, God forbear the people of this world. For 120 years, the people of Noah's day had time to repent and return before the flood. God didn't command the flood and the next day it started to sprinkle. He said, Noah, I'm going to send a flood. Build an ark. Build it big. 
And we know from other verses that Noah spent 120 years building the ark and preaching the word. Speaking the truth. We, we know back in the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch proclaimed that the flood was coming. Well, how do you know that? He named his son Methuselah, which means in his birth it shall come. Speaking of the flood, Methuselah died and that year the flood came. God forbear 120 years. That's forbearance. And I can't wait a few weeks or months or years for someone to come around. I've tried and tried and tried and I, I just I give up. Forbearance. God waited 400 years for the wickedness of the Canaanites to reach its full flow. What was He doing? I believe allowing the Canaanites opportunity to turn from their evil and repent. While His people were tucked away in Egypt, ultimately enslaved there, the land of Canaan had 400 years. Genesis 15:13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What does that mean? It means they haven't sinned big enough yet. Doesn't mean God's sitting around watching and waiting for them to hit that mark of sin. It means with the heart and kindness that we understand in the nature of God, He was waiting to give them opportunity to stop it. And they did not. God waited nearly 900 years and then another 500 years for His people Israel to follow Him there in the land. 900 years... And then they were brought into captivity. They came back another 500 years before Messiah came, before Jesus came. And God waited and He waited. He showed great forbearance, tolerance for His people Israel. And He's still forbearing for Israel. Still has a plan for the Jewish people. 2,000 years after that. That, my friends, is forbearance. Talk about tolerance. And God has been forbearing for more than 2,000 years waiting on an ungodly and unrighteous world to repent. He could have called it game over right at the resurrection. Do you realize that? Jesus resurrected. People had rejected Him. We're through. Out Out of the world. You're done. But He didn't. He waited. And he waited, and he waited. And today when people say, where's the promise of his coming? I mean, it's all just kind of going on and on. You say he's going to return. Well, it's been 2,000 years. Yeah. The tolerance of God. The patience of God. Romans 3.25 says, God displayed Jesus publicly. As a propitiation in His blood through faith. We'll talk about what a propitiation is, not this morning, but soon. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Didn't even hold them to account for it. Waited until Jesus would die on the cross so that redemption could come to those who had faith even though they had sin. People like Abraham, who when you study Abraham's life, as we'll get to in Romans 4, (laughs) Abraham was a sinner. He blew it. He lied. He misrepresented the truth. He did not treat his wife well. And God passed over that sin, crediting Abraham by his faith 
so that when Jesus died, that faith would kick in and Abraham would be saved. It's remarkable. The forbearance of God. Understand this. Here's the difference between tolerance, as we see it in our culture, and the forbearance of God, the tolerance of God. Tolerance is not waving off sin. Tolerance is waiting for repentance. Understand that. It's not saying, oh, you're sinning, that's fine, I'll just, I'm tolerant. No, that's not tolerance. It's giving people time, opportunity to respond. Lest we marginalize and forget about verse 5, Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That day will come. The day of wrath will come. Judgment day will happen. As it always has in the past, by the way, God's wrath will be satisfied. Whoa. But it's been a long time. How do you know? God's wrath is always ultimately satisfied. And will be. And even now, it's remarkable, he continues to show kindness and tolerance holding off his wrath. That's forbearance. But his wrath is going to come. The end is near. These things will come to fruition. The third word is patience. Kindness, tolerance, and finally, patience, which is a great word. It's macrothumia. Macro. We use that for like something big. It's literally long. Uh, Thumos. Macrothumos is the root word of this. And it means long anger. Thumos is anger or wrath. It's a synonym for this other word for anger. Macrothumos. Long anger. What does that mean? The idea is holding off anger over a great distance or span of time or space. Holding off anger. You could translate it as long-suffering or long-putting-up-with. As Jesus would say, how long shall I put up with you? They thought He was talking about right then. I believe Jesus was talking about history. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I put up with you? Patience. What does that look like? It's long-suffering. It's long-putting-off anger. Luke 13, verse 6, Jesus began telling them a parable. He said, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding anything. Cut it down! Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone. For this year too, until I dig around it, put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Cut it down? That's the day of wrath. That's the guaranteed promise of judgment, but let's give it another year. Or in our case, 2,000. Do you see the kindness? And the tolerance? And even the patience, the long putting up with of God? Now here's the thing to know about this verse. They're all nouns. All three of these words are nouns. That is, they are godly attributes. They are not adjectives that describe God. They are God. 
God is kindness. God is tolerance. God is patience. It's not what He does. It's who He is. But back in verse 4, then Paul continues and says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, who He is? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance and kindness there is an adjective. That is now describing what God does. What He does simply flows out of who He is. The kindness here again, it's krestos, the adjective form. It describes God's character, His kindness in dynamics, His his active dynamic kindness. And it hit me in reading this that what's at stake here once again is the righteousness of God. Here's the contrast. The character of humanity, not going to get there. The character of God, kindness, tolerance, patience, our only hope. He is the water station in the midst of this marathon run. He's the one. Do I think lightly of the righteousness of God, the character, the nature of God? Driving to church this morning, I was praying about this. And I was thinking, Lord, I want to I explain repentance well. And, and He said, don't explain repentance. Just tell them about me. Share my character. And once again, I'm drawn right back to that same place. How many times have we heard this over the years? It's not about my even keeping of His Word. It's about His character. And if I am drawn to His character, if I know Him, if I seek Him, I'm going to keep this. It's the natural outflow. It's the fruit of His Spirit who is in me. I'm going to do these things. But if all I want to do is do these things, I'm like a Pharisee washing my hands in the purification water and always being thirsty. We despise the kindness of God when we reject it as unnecessary or refuse it to other people. But there's a third way. Listen, the last one. A third way His kindness can be despised. And perhaps some of you need to hear this today. It's when I refuse it to myself. Oh, His kindness is fine for other people. I can even tell other people about the grace and kindness of God. But not for me. I'm too sinful. Really? Does anyone here really think you're too sinful for God to overcome? How arrogant. How prideful. To think that my sin of all the people in all the history of the world is just too bad and therefore I'm going to refuse God's kindness and I'm spurning it because I refuse it to myself. When a man, when a woman rejects God's kindness to them, they despise His very nature. And I remind you again, we are not the standard by which either salvation or condemnation are measured. God is. He is the standard that measures my salvation, and He is the standard that measures condemnation. This was never about whether you're good enough or worthy enough or clean enough for Him to offer His kindness. He does it because that's who He is. God is kind. And so He acts in kindness. And who He has revealed Himself to be in grace and truth, in redemption, in righteousness. Now, do you think lightly? 
of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. One last word to tell you. Riches. The riches of His kindness, it's plutos. In the Greek, it means the abundance of wealth. But what interests me is the root meaning is to flow or to fill up. As in filling up a water pot. As in flowing like the abundant flow of living water. The riches of His kindness. The flow. The overflow. The outflow. Jeremiah 17.13 Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they've forsaken the fountain of living water. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Peter said, therefore repent and return so your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And something marvelous happens when repentance takes place. Regardless of where you might fall in Romans 1, 2, or 3, maybe your life has been that of the ungodly and the unrighteous completely depraved. Or maybe you're the person who's lived a pretty good life and you think, mostly I could make it on my own, except for one or two things, but mostly I'm a good person. Or you think, hey, I've been to church every morning since I was born. I've kept God's Word. I've gone to Bible studies. I've put money in the box on occasion. I've been good and religious and self-righteous. Hey, wherever you may have fallen in that camp, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, let them come to me, Jesus says, and drink. And what happens when we repent, when we turn around, when we come to the water station, all the unrighteous sin, all the self-righteous bigotry, and even all the legalistic religiosity evaporates. It's gone. So man, stop looking over your shoulder if you've repented and come to Jesus. Woman, stop looking back at the carnage behind you. And be refreshed. Be refreshed. For the condemnation of these three chapters no longer applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I have to read ahead. Chapter 3, verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's where this is all going. That's why the letter to the saints in Rome is such a magnificent letter. Not because of the first three chapters, but because of where the rest goes if we will only repent. Turn around. And the truth is, there have been water stations all along the way for 6,000 years. Every mile marker on this human race marathon has had water stations from the Lord. Opportunities to repent at every turn. God saying, be refreshed, be refreshed, be refreshed. And so all you have to answer this morning is, what are you going to do with the kindness of God? Father, it is your kindness that draws us to repentance. words cannot describe, the words that that we've used this morning to try and understand, even pulling out Greek meaning and all of that. Father, it it, it can't, can't fully describe 
what it is you've done. Or even more so, who you are. But in this point in history and time, Lord, I can say honestly, I do not despise Your goodness, Your kindness. I do not think lightly of it. Father, it's one of the greatest things You have ever done. And we praise You for it. And we glorify the awesome, righteous, merciful, kind nature of our God and Father in Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray for us this morning as we stand together, as we sing in a moment, that Your kindness will draw us to repentance. Perhaps someone this morning needs to repent right now. Maybe there's someone here who needs to repent of their lack of repentance. Of their refusal to just turn to You. And Father, my prayer is that as we pursue the righteousness of God, we would not make this about ourselves who we think we are or what we think we've done. But Holy Spirit, may we be completely focused on who You are and be drawn to repentance in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up. And if you would respond to God this morning, prayer team, come up, go to the sides, come forward.